are looking at today will be in that passage in uh, 1 Timothy. We're continuing the series which we've titled uh, Your Life, Church Life. We're wanting to go through what God's Word teaches us on church life and how to be a church. Uh, We started this series looking in Ephesians 2 when we established some of the basic principles of church, and that is Jesus Christ is the founder of the church. He is the chief cornerstone. The teaching of the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. That's the Bible. So Christ is at the center. The Bible, his teaching is what the church is built on. The believers, us, who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're the living stones. We're the bricks that the church is built on. And the Holy Spirit is the occupant. The Holy Spirit lives in his people. The Holy Spirit lives in his church. And all this can happen because God is the master builder. He is the master builder. And the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells with us has huge implications. And the fact that God is the builder of his church has a huge encouragement to us. Because he has promised that he will build his church. And he's promised that the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he's promised that it will be given to Christ one day. So we've got great hope going forward in this series that we can practically be the church that God is wanting us to be. And that's why we moved on to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy teaches us the the foundation principles and the practicality of how to live church life, what to do in church. And last week we were just looking at the, the whole of the book to get a feel for it. We realized afresh that it was written by Paul. And we saw that it was written to Timothy, but not just to Timothy. It was written to him particularly, but also to the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor. And then we saw very clearly that it wasn't just for the church in Ephesus. It's for the church at all times. It is for us today here in Left Kosher Protestant Church. It's God's guidance for us of how to be a church and how to function as a church. It was written uh, probably around about 62 A.D. from Macedonia. And what is the letter all about? The letter is how to behave in the household of God, or how to behave in church. How to behave in church as a family member, how to uh, behave in church as an assembly of the living God, how to behave in church as a pillar of truth. And that comes from 1 Timothy 3, uh, 14 and 15. And that's where we were looking uh, particularly last week. And then we did a a survey and a quick overview of the whole of the book. And I said that we'll be dividing this up into chapters and going through it at chapters at a time. And so this this first chapter I've just entitled The Message of the Church. This first chapter, as we look at it, I'm looking at it from the emphasis of what it's saying about church life. Now, the reason I say this is there's lots in this book relating to Timothy. And as it relates to Timothy personally, it's very applicable to pastors. And so there's a lot of teaching in this book for pastors. There's lots of teaching for for lots of different things. But I just want us to focus and drill down, because of our series on the church, what it means to the church. So that's going to be the emphasis. So there may be some verses we don't look into so deeply. And if you have questions about them, join us on Sunday evening so we can talk about them. Uh, We will come back to them, but it's not going to be an exhaustive study of this. It's going to be looking particularly at church life and how it affects your life and my life as we do church together here 
at LPC and wherever else you go on to do church in your future. So the first thing, I've got two main headings. Sorry, I've got three main headings. Uh, and, And the first main heading is this. Dangerous message. Dangerous message. There's a challenge to churches uh, as Paul is writing to Timothy. And the first big challenge he's talking about is a dangerous message. And this dangerous message, as we can see, is a false doctrine, false teaching. Uh, And we see this described in in verse 3 at the end of it. It talks about a different doctrine. Nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. And that's verse 6. So we see that there is a dangerous message. There is false doctrine. And Timothy is warning, uh, sorry, Paul is warning Timothy that that can happen in churches. In churches, this false doctrines can come in. People can bring them in. They can take you away from the faith. They can make you wander from the truth. You can discuss things at great length that have no value in producing the stewardship from God that is faith. You see, a false doctrine is a false foundation that produces a false church. And a false church is likely to crumble. It's not going to last because it's not the true church. And you see, the sneaky thing is that some of this false teaching doesn't need to be anything major. It can be a little thing. It can be an insignificant thing. But anything that takes your eyes off Jesus becomes major. So false teaching within a church that we have to be protected from, a false doctrine, can actually be something quite insignificant. But it becomes more and more significant. And in time it takes over and it takes Christ's place. And in that situation it is extremely dangerous. So we have to look out for it. We have to take care about it. But how do false doctrines get into the church? Well, more often than not, false doctrines come through false teachers. And so under this heading of dangerous message, we've got false doctrine. And then secondly, we've got false teachers. And verses 6 and 7 give us an insight in how to false teachers come about in the church. It talks about certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Well, I I can't imagine what the Apostle Paul would have said to a Timothy now. Because he was just talking about one particular church in Ephesus and the things he'd been hearing there. I, I can't imagine what the Apostle Paul would have done if someone had given him a Twitter account or someone had given him YouTube. And he starts going through it and seeing that out there, there are so many people who are teaching, but they're teaching without understanding God's word. And they make confident assertions without realizing what the truth is. And so there are people who desire to be teachers, And somewhere else in God's word, it tells us to be an elder, to be a deacon, is something that is to be desired, and that's a good thing. 
But these people have got no right to desire that, no right to be going that way, because they have not got a right understanding of God's word. They may be very eloquent. They may be good speakers. They may be able to communicate very, very well. They may keep your attention. They may tell great stories. They may give wonderful illustrations. They may be very charismatic, energetic people. And and the message may sound great, and as it says there, delivered with confidence. But if they're not understanding God's word, if they're not knowing what God is saying, then they're going to bring false teaching into the church. Now this letter goes on to give guidance to the churches of how to get right teachers. And we'll be looking at that later. We'll go into that in more detail later. But at this moment, I just want to think, I think it's just fair to say at this moment, is we should be very, very nervous of self-appointed teachers and preachers. Teachers and preachers should come up through the local church. Teachers and preachers need to be those that are called by God. And the calling that God gives them should be seen and, and uh, and committed and uh, given credence by the church, God's people seeing that. And so we just need to be nervous of that. And so these are real dangers. There is the dangerous message, a false doctrine, the dangerous message from false teachers. Now this message then Changes. The letter goes on in this chapter 1 from the negative of these negative things that we need to be careful of and Timothy needed to look out for and, and teach the church about to what we can call the glorious gospel message. And so the second main heading for this morning is the glorious gospel message. There's a dangerous message, untruth. But there is the glorious gospel message. And as we see the, the glorious gospel message uh, outlined in this chapter of, of 1 Timothy, we've got four subheadings that I want us to, to go through, four subpoints from this, uh, this particular chapter, from this letter. And then the first thing we see here is salvation from sin. The glorious gospel message is salvation from sin. And to truly understand the gospel, to truly understand good news, we have to know why and what we need to be saved from. A lot of people say, I've been saved. I'm trusting in Jesus, I've been saved. Saved from what? What is the big deal? Well, verse 9 talks about this. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul is explaining to Timothy that the law has got an important job to do. The law is not for the just. The the law is given to us so that we can see where we have failed God. Just people don't need the law from that perspective because they are right with God. 
And when we're right with God, we want to do what pleases him. And we will endeavor with his strength to keep the law. But the law doesn't save us. The law shows us our sinful nature. The law shows us where we've failed God's standards. And I think it's very, very interesting here, isn't it? Of how this is laid out. It talks about lawless and disobedient and ungodly and sinners and unholy and profane. Now, they're all big words and they're all heavy words, but we can just sort of leave them to a side. But then they're likened to people who strike their fathers and mothers. They're likened to murderers. They're likened to sexually immorality. They're likened to slave traders and liars and, and, and perjurers and people who take and then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether we like it or not, all of us start off our lives and one of those labels, at least, if not many of them, is ours. And the gospel message brings us to this point and shows us this. You see, the law is needed to show lawlessness. The law is needed to show disobedience. The law is needed to show that people are ungodly, that they are sinners, that they are unholy, that they are profane. And that's exactly what they are before God. And that's exactly what we are all before God without grace. And you see, Paul is is not slow in explaining that that's exactly what he was like. Paul isn't ashamed of the fact, he's ashamed of the fact that he's sinned, but he's not ashamed to, to own his sinful nature from formerly. Verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in my unbelief. You see, he was a sinner. The Apostle Paul acknowledges the fact that this is where he came from. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, we have God's word. And as part of the glorious gospel is to show us that we have sinned. See, just like good medical treatment, good medical treatment always starts with the diagnosis. And often that diagnosis is bad news. I'm very sorry you have an abscess. I'm very sorry to have to inform you, but there is a lump that we fear is cancerous. I'm really sorry that you've got an abscess in your tooth. And and that is the negative. That is the problem. And then the doctor or the dentist will go on to say, but what we can do is we'll give you these antibiotics. We will do root canal treatment. And then in a week or so's time, everything will be fine. And so with the bad news, we then can get the good news. If you went to the doctor and you'd not been feeling right and something was wrong and and he made a a very helpful, accurate diagnosis and, and he brings the fact to you that you've got a fatal yet treatable illness, What would you think if after him stating that you've got a fatal yet treatable illness, he sends you home without giving you the treatment? Well, that's not a good doctor, is it? 
A good doctor doesn't just give you the problem. The good doctor is the one who goes on to give an answer. And here, the gospel message gives us the problem, and it gives us the problem straight. And God's law shows us that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what is so glorious about the gospel is it gives an answer to the problem. It gives an answer to sin. You see, secondly, we see in this glorious gospel that salvation is in our Savior Christ. Verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptation. Now, there's uh, five of these sayings in this uh, letter. And these are all sayings that are said at that time. You see, they didn't have the letter. They didn't have the New Testament but what the, the apostles and the teachers did then is they had some, some sayings that they had that helped the church understand the truth and have become God's word now, hasn't it? And, and this is what it is. What this, one of these sayings was that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. God doesn't just merely say, I forgive you and I forget the sin. Now, if, if a loved one of yours had been horribly murdered, if, if a, a, a horrendous criminal offense had been brought against you, and, and the perpetrator had been caught, and the perpetrator is in court, and the judge is presiding, and the jury have pronounced him guilty, and he has accepted the guilt, and he said he's guilty, and, and is Part of his plea, he, he looks at the judge and says, I'm so sorry. I really shouldn't have done that. I, I, I really regret doing that. I, I, I am so sorry. And then if the judge turned around to him and said, well, because you're so sorry, I forgive you. I'm going to let you go free. What would you as a family member think in that situation? You, you would say that is totally unjust. That's totally wrong. How dare the judge forgive the person? You see, God can't, God can't just say, I'll forgive you. I'll just forget about it. It's a little bit of sin. It's not important. God hates sin. God's wrath has to be measured out on sin. And so Jesus came to this world to take the punishment of the sins of his people. the seen and the unseen sufferings of the cross. The known and the unknown sufferings of the cross to us as humans. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was when Jesus, God's son, was receiving the full wrath that the sins of his people deserve. Christ was eating up the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And so God doesn't just say, I forgive you. God says, I forgive you because Christ has paid the price. Justice is done. The punishment has been measured out. And so he's not just saying, oh, it doesn't matter. He's saying it matters. And I hate sin. And justice is important. And Christ has taken the punishment. So you can go free. That is the good news of the gospel. 
You see, for Paul to receive this grace, to, for Paul to receive this forgiveness, he had to come to the point himself of seeing that he was a sinner. And then he said this in his own words, didn't he? We, we, we read there that he said, this is an acceptable saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this bit. This is his own little bit that he adds to the end, of whom I am the foremost, or of whom I am the chief. You see, When God worked in Paul's heart, as Saul, he was going to Damascus, as Saul, he was going to to get the Christians, as Saul, he was going to murder the Christians. That's what he said. He was involved in persecuting the church. And on that journey, Christ came down to him and opened his eyes and he saw that he was a sinner. And for all of his life, he talks of himself as being the chief of sinners. Look at it. It's not past tense. He's not saying that of who I was the foremost, of whom I am the foremost. He felt this because he saw the depth of his sinfulness. And there's a sense that we need to be humble to the same point. And I think if the Apostle Paul was here and we were arguing with him and I said, no, I think I'm the chief of sinners. And he said, no, I think I'm the chief of sinners. He would put forward a very strong case. But we need to be humble to the point where we see ourselves before God as the chief of sinners. And sadly, nowadays, this doctrine of man's sinfulness and Jesus being the only way of salvation is under attack by false teachers. You see, the church is shying away from calling out sin and telling people that they need to repent. And they don't do it because they think they don't like it. Some think tank, some survey said, well, people don't like the sin word, but they want to hear about a God of love. People don't want to be told to repent, but they want to be told how to get rich and how to have a positive life and how to have affirmations of wonder at all times. You see, if you don't make the people feel good, the numbers won't come in and we want numbers because we want God to be glorified. And this false teaching comes in and erodes the gospel truth. In this day and age, when everyone's opinions and beliefs are right, How is the church to say that Christ is the only way of salvation? That's not kind. That's not tolerant. That's been so dogmatic. That's been so old-fashioned. And that's wrong. And we need to hold on to these doctrines that are here in God's word. That man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way back to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. As he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through the Son. It's interesting, isn't this whole sort of idea that everyone's options and beliefs are right? If you saw someone about to electrocute themselves... They were there and there was a live wire and they were about to to grab hold of it. You you would want to reach out to help, wouldn't you? You'd say to them, look, don't do that. If, if If you touch those live wires, you will fry yourself alive. You'll become toast. And then if they looked at you and smiled and said, well, I don't believe in electricity. What would you do? 
You, you still would want to restrain them, wouldn't you? You may think this person is nuts. How can they not believe in electricity? But, but nowadays we have a similar thing going on. We have a world full of people who are con- going to be condemned by their sin. And they say, oh, it doesn't matter. We're not to let it go. We're to hold fast to the doctrine. You see, salvation leads to eternal life. As Paul says to Timothy, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and his example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the truth. It's not just saving someone from an electric shock. It's eternal life. The doctrine that we hold is a doctrine of eternal life or eternal damnation. That's the importance of holding to the truth. You see, salvation leads to eternal life, but salvation also leads to a life of service right now. And we see here in this passage, salvation to serve in verses 12 and verses 3 and verses 5, both Paul and Timothy were commissioned to serve the church, to serve Christ, to serve God. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul speaking. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. God appointed Paul to a task. And in verse 3, Paul urged Timothy. He urges Timothy to go to Macedonia, to remain at Ephesus, and say, stay there. Charge the persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy was given a task. Timothy was called to serve. You see, we're not all called to be preachers and teachers. But we are all called to serve. And part of church life is serving. We are part of a body. And we all have a part to play. And as we go on through this letter, we will see that we have responsibility. We will see we have uh, opportunity to serve. And we must take that and do that. You see, the gospel message is not just about salvation. It's about sanctification. It's about an ongoing process. God's ongoing dealing with us to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this fruit that we see in our lives. And and sanctification is is not an option. And and serving within the church and the church family is not an option. It's what we are called to do. You see, if we're not being sanctified, if, if a Christian is not growing, there's something seriously wrong. We've had the, the, the real joy of giving thanks for Deborah this morning, haven't we? And uh, as, I was, as I was saying, the last time I held her, before now, she, she proved that she got a good set of lungs. But when I was holding her, she was very light. And today I noticed she was much heavier. And uh, are her parents happy with that? Of course they are. She's growing. And we want to see the babies grow into toddlers. We want to see the toddlers grow into young children. We want people to grow. That's what happens. And similarly, as we are believers, we should be growing. Because if we're not growing in faithfulness, that's what leads to shipwrecks. And we also see in this passage that 
There is salvation from shipwrecks. That's the gospel message. There is salvation from shipwrecks. We could look at this negatively, but I want to look at it positively in this sense. You see, Paul tells Timothy, using military language, that he must progress his walk with the Lord. He says, wage the good warfare in the end of verse 18. Hold fast, or holding faith and a good conscience. You see, it's a battle. There's a battle going on. That's why military language is used. Warfare going on. And and this warfare is our Christian walk. And in church life, we are, as as the hymn says, onward Christian soldiers. We are marching. We've got to keep on going. We've got to keep on growing. We've got to keep on holding the faith and holding a good conscience. A bad conscience separates us from God. A bad conscience means there is sin getting in the way in our lives and sin getting in the way of our church. We need to hold to this faith because it's not about what we do, it's about what's been done for us. And as we've been saved, we should be able to, with God's grace, have a good conscience. But if we don't wage this good warfare, there's a big problem. And there's a big danger. And that's what Paul is shouting at Timothy, as it were. I could almost imagine if he's texting, he'll be doing high letters in bold here. He'll be saying, listen, look, that there are some that have rejected this. And by rejecting this, they've made shipwreck of their faith. In England, we'll be saying now that they've made a train wreck. They've had a, a plane crash. It's a, it's a disaster. There is a disaster in their faith because they've rejected this truth. They're not holding the faith. They've not got a good conscience. They're not waging the warfare. Uh, And there's a real warning here to us and and Timothy and to the church back then and to us now. And these two men, he calls out examples. Can you imagine this letter when it's been read out? These two could well have been there in the congregation. I don't know who was reading the letter at the time, but you can imagine when they get into this, this part of the letter thinking, do I have to say their names? Do I have to say it? But the reality this morning here and online is there may be some of you who are heading towards shipwreck. And you may be heading towards shipwreck because you've given up the good warfare. You've given up fighting. You've given up holding the faith and your conscience is bad. There is stuff that is in your life, that should not be in your life. You should be waging war with those sins, but rather than waging war, you're playing with them and enjoying them and promoting them, probably hiding them from the pastors, probably hiding them from your housemates, but they're there. And they cause shipwreck. Paul calls these two out. He knows they're up to it. And he says, I want to hand you, I want you to hand them over to Satan that they may not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that may sound really harsh, but if you look across reference to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you, you realize that this is church discipline. You see that in Corinthians 5, verse 5, it says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. There is church discipline. Now, today is not the day to go into that. But just as we need salvation from shipwreck, what God sometimes uses for that 
is church discipline. Church discipline is not to punish people. Church discipline is to see people restored and brought back to God. And so thirdly, as a main heading, much shorter than the others, just sort of conclude this to ourselves. What's the message to us? We've seen there's a dangerous message. We've seen there's the glorious message of the gospel. But now I want us to see what is the message to us as a church. And as we've been going through this, I hope what you've been hearing is that biblical doctrine is vitally important. Holding on to God's word is vitally important for salvation and for sanctification. It is the foundation that the church is built on. And so, friends, we need to be praying that we're not afraid of doctrine in this day and age. We're in a day and age where some people sort of say, oh, doctrine's bad. Doctrine's not good. We just need love. No, we need doctrine. We need God's word. That is the foundation. And we need to be praying that as a church and as individuals, we are kept in God's word. Also, biblical salvation. We need to hold fast the biblical salvation. The only way of salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church can only be made up of living stones. And so if we move away from biblical salvation, if we move to some other model, we are no longer a church. It is vitally important as a church we hold fast to biblical salvation. Salvation is it's taught us in God's word. We should be praying that we don't run with the world and soften salvation and say it's one of many ways. Soften salvation so we take sin out. Soften salvation so we emphasize love and the benefits that we get. Move salvation to something that it's not. We need to pray that God keeps us from that. We need to pray that God keeps us faithful to salvation through Christ alone. Biblical teachers, biblical teachers, what we need as a church is men called of God to be the preachers and the teachers. That's vitally important to the church. We need to pray that all who are teaching the word, whether in the Sunday school, whether at the ladies meeting, whether on one-to-ones or whatever it's happening, that the Lord would help us and enable us by the power of the Spirit to teach with understanding. Because if you're not teaching with understanding, you could be going down a route that's going to teach false teaching. We need to pray that we be protected from false teachers. You need to be praying for the preachers and the teachers here. As people lead the prayer meetings, as people preach here, as people take ladies' meetings, as different ones are involved, you should be praying for those people that are doing the teaching, that the Lord would teach them, that the Lord would give them the understanding they need, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them so that we could have biblical teachers. The church needs biblical teachers. And as you go forward and move on somewhere else, you need to be looking at a church where there is biblical teachers teaching God's word faithfully. And if they're not, find a church. And if you can't find a church, start a church. Because what the church needs is to be built on biblical doctrine, biblical salvation with biblical teachers. And then lastly, there is a need for biblical church discipline. To be a healthy church, we need to be willing to conduct discipline. Not to punish, but to see people restored. 
We don't want to see people making a shipwreck of their faith. We don't want to see people suffering needlessly. We want to see people built up. And that's what biblical discipline is all about. And that, in a nutshell, is what the first chapter of 1 Timothy is all about. And I want us to just respond in in singing hymn 42. It's going to come up on the screen, Amazing Grace, because that just reminds us of that glorious gospel that's been given to us.